0: I'm going to have you now turn to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, if you would, please. And you have a bullet to insert there with regard to uh, the outline. If you'd like to use that, you can take that out. Uh, As many of you know, I have chosen to go through uh, a number of the uh, uh, passages, that is, the uh, chapters in the book of Revelation. I am not committed. Somebody asked me this morning, are you not going to go through the whole book? That was not my intent. Uh, I'm expecting the Lord to come back before I get there, okay? And uh, so he'll, he'll explain what I don't understand uh, for certain, and then you'll know it right. But uh, I have chosen to uh, take you on this journey through the book of Revelation because of the uh, difficulties that are in our world and also have been coming upon us here in the United States. This is a book that God uses to speak to our hearts uh, to prepare us for uh, persecution, for suffering, for hardship, to be able to persevere. It also prepares us for the coming of the Lord. I mean, the, the, the early church was greatly suffering, and uh, John on the Isle of Patmos was suffering. And so God used this uh, revelation to encourage them. Uh, and He begins with the glory of His Son. And I want you to see that as we, uh, will get into that this morning. So one of the greatest ways that Revelation encourages and strengthens and prepares us to endure suffering is by revealing to us the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it does this at the very beginning of the book. Another way it does this is by assuring us right at the beginning that the Lord, our Lord and Savior is coming back again and He's coming soon. Look, if you would, at verses 7 and 8. I know we've looked at them a couple of Sundays ago, but behold, that captures our attention. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. That's the Jewish folk, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be, Amen. And then he puts his name, his signature to it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Right at the beginning of the book, he states that profoundly, to speak to your and my heart. Last Sunday, we looked at verse 9 and joined the apostle John on the island of Patmos. Let me read verse 9 to you at this time. I John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus notice he though the he's apostle He probably was the only apostle alive. Maybe he was the only one alive that had actually visibly seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he doesn't address these brothers and sisters as an apostle, though he was one. Rather, he says, I'm your brother. I am your fellow partaker. And those are three areas in tribulation, in the tribulation, but also the kingdom. He belonged to the Lord and His kingdom, and they did as well. And then in perseverance, that He was persevering, they were persevering. And dear ones, God has called upon you and me as well to persevere no matter what He may allow to come upon us. Judy, I'm glad you're here because tomorrow you're leaving and you're headed back to Nigeria. And we do not know, because of that dangerous country, what's going to come upon our sister. But we will be committed. We are committed to praying for you. But you understand, verse 9, because you are there. And that's true of many brothers and sisters around the world. And as I said, it's becoming more and more so for you and me as well. So John has been banished to this island of Patmos, where he evidently was sentenced to work in the mines. By this time, according to the early church fathers, John was most likely in his 80s. But God chooses, listen, He chooses the bleakest of circumstances and places to reveal Himself in all His glory to His children. Remember that. As painful as those valley experiences may be, treasure them. Did you hear me? Treasure them and look for God. He has something very special for you. Seek Him. Wait for Him and know that He is there with you and He has you there in your valley for a very special reason that will bring glory to Him and ultimately wonderful, wonderful blessing to you as well. After nearly sixty years since he last saw his Lord and Savior ascended to heaven, John is about to behold the glory of Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Beholding the glory of Christ. Notice and this is the first major thing I want you to look at. John is struck by Christ's glory on the Lord's day. He's struck by Christ's glory on On the Lord's Day. Verses 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Saying, write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John is struck by Christ's glory on the Lord's Day. First, the Holy Spirit brought this about. The Holy Spirit is the one who brought this about. He says, I was in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit caused John to experience being carried beyond normal sense into a state where God could reveal supernaturally to him the contents of this book. Ezekiel had a similar experience as this. He tells us the Spirit lifted it up, And took him away and caused him to hear and see things that earthlings do not hear or see. You might recall Peter. When we went through the book of Acts, he was there at Simon the Tanner's house on the rooftop, and uh, he was asleep, and then he fell into this trance, and he saw this sheet come down out of heaven. It was filled both of clean and unclean. It wasn't a dream. It was a trance he was in. And then he heard that voice say, Rise and eat. And three times it happened. So he understood, this is not just a dream. This is something that God has brought me into as the Spirit moved upon him. I think that probably Paul in whatever way, experienced a similar situation as this as well. He says, I was caught up into the third heaven. I can't tell you whether I was there in the flesh or not. I just know what? I was there. I was there. He says, third heaven, because there's the atmospheric heaven, there's the spatial heaven, and then there's that heaven where God dwells. And so the Holy Spirit brought this about. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What does that mean? Well, some would say, it means Sunday, you know, the first day of the week, because they, uh, that was called by the early church the Lord's Day. Uh, it was uh, uh, the uh, first, the day that the Lord resurrected was on Sunday. It was when the church began on the day of Pentecost, and some would say that. But it's interesting, you never have that statement referring to Sunday used in the Bible in that way, unless this would be the first time. It usually is on the first day of the week is how they emphasize that. Although in the early church writings we find the early church did state it that way, but not in Scripture. You know, it's most likely not that. It's probably that day of the Lord spoken about in the Old Testament. I believe that that's probably what's the significance here of that. It's that day that the Lord mentions there, that extended period of time in which God deals in judgment and sovereign rule over the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit projected John forward into that future day of the Lord, that seven-year tribulation period, which I believe is about to fall upon us even now. I mean, when you understand Scripture and when you see everything that is going on, you have to lift up your eyes and realize your redemption is drawing nigh. There is a time event here that's spoken about, and I believe that we are very well living near that time, if not in it. So the Holy Spirit brought this about. But then notice number two. A trumpet sound commanded John's attention. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. So it's a voice like the sound of a trumpet, he says. When Israel came out of Egypt, And Moses took them to Sinai, where they're going to meet the Lord. I always like that. They're going out to meet the Lord. And so he prepares them for this. And then there came that moment when they met the Lord. Let me read that to you so you just get a sense of what John was experiencing here when he heard this voice as a sound of a mighty trumpet or a loud trumpet. In Exodus 19, you might want to put that beside uh, your verse there, uh, verse 10. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Frightening experience here. They had been through storms, but nothing like this. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. You're about to meet Him as well on the pages of Scripture in Revelation 1. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because of the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Very awesome, very frightening, this trumpet that commanded their attention. I mean, it just got the total beam there at the foot of that mountain. And by the way, you're going to hear about trumpets in the book of Revelation, and believe me, the world is going to meet God. And it will be far beyond what they could have ever imagined. This God that somehow they think, must open their, His arms of love and just allow everybody into heaven. You know, everybody who dies now goes to heaven, so to speak. And I'll tell you, there's only one way, and that's through His Son. And uh, that whole concept is seen, and we talked about it, about what God did to His Son at the cross so that you and I could go into heaven. And these elements represent that, do they not? When the uh, temple service began every morning, uh, before the doors were opened, a trumpet was sounded. It's interesting that a trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's an awesome moment or event, if you please, that the trumpet heralds and announces is about to take place. The trumpet will sound again and you will, that is, there will be devastating judgments that will fall upon the earth. Again, that's found in this book of Revelation. So this loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, summoned the Apostle John. And someday soon, dear ones, it's going to summon you and me as well. Amen? Wonderful. Wonderful. The saved will be summoned by a trumpet. It commanded his attention and assured him of the divinity of the speaker and of the importance of what was to follow. Well, thirdly, John was commanded to write down what he saw he was commanded to write down what he saw verse 11 write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea 12 times in this book John is commanded to write down the visions that he sees it's interesting to me that there's one time he's commanded don't write what you saw well that certainly piques your interest doesn't it he's, you know, I wonder what that was. Well, we'll leave that to God. He'll reveal it in his own time, will he not? But he's told to write down these visions and send this scroll, this book, this letter to the seven churches which were located in Asia Minor. That's part of modern-day Turkey. Now, the first one was Ephesus. That was about 50 miles from this island of Patmos where he is. And they were kind of a circular route. It was a postal route, if you please, and that would be the way you would get information out. But why seven? There were certainly more churches than that, but why seven? Well, seven is that number used in the Bible for completion. These seven churches were represented uh, of uh, all Christ's churches, including churches even today. We'll see how that is so when we get into chapters 2 and 3. But they represent all of those who are really or that are really Christ's churches. So here we find John is transported by the Spirit into the day of the Lord, into the day of the Lord, where he is struck by the glory of Christ. And now we come to the next major movement there in verses 12 and 13. John is struck by Christ's glory in the midst of the lampstands. This goes step by step here. First, he's struck by that glory on the day of the Lord, that loud trumpet that caught his attention. And now he's struck by Christ's glory in the midst of the lampstands. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. He first sees seven golden lampstands. Your Bible may see say, candlesticks. Well, you know, he was familiar with the lamp stand that stood in the tabernacle as well as in the temple. It was of one piece of solid gold. It had seven different lamps to it. The priests would come in and they would trim those lamps and they would make sure there was oil there. Every morning and every night they kept it constantly lit there. And uh, we know the purpose of it. By the way, it was made of pure gold. Verse 20 tells us what it's all about. Look down in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. No question about it then. Each lampstand represented one of those seven churches, Ephesus and so forth here. What is the purpose? To give forth light. How did it do that? They reflect the glory of Christ. You know what? If a church is not reflecting that glory, and by the way, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and uh, uh, we've looked upon the face of Christ, the glory of Christ, and uh, He is now your life, He's your very reason for living, and we have the Word of God that God honors. If a church is not doing that, then listen, the light has gone out. That's right. It's gone out. What's frightening about this, and we'll see it in much later time if the Lord allows here when we get in chapters two and three, is that these seven churches, other than two of them, the light has already gone out. Fifty years from now, if I dare go that far, see, I'm expecting to live another fifty years. (laughs) But will this church still have a light? That's a concern. It's interesting, even as individual believers, how the light can go out. I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but the light can go out. Why? Because if you're not reflecting Christ, if I'm not reflecting Christ, there is no light. We reflect Him. We are not the light. We reflect Him. Very important. So they reflect the Lord Jesus Christ... He is the light of the world. Philippians, you remember chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I wonder why he put those two in there. It must be a common problem. Do it without grumbling or disputing. I mean, it's a command. Why? So that you will prove yourselves. To be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst. Listen. In the midst of a crooked and perverse world or generation. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast. That's The word is either holding fast or it can be holding forth the word of light. We are the lights and that's how we do that. But notice the precious value. He sees these are all made of pure gold. Dear ones, I cannot, I I cannot express to you the intense value you have and you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to the cross to make you His own. But it isn't just each individual, it is the church itself. The, even the local church we're talking about, like those seven churches, they were made of pure gold. They were precious to the Lord. It's the most precious thing here upon the earth to Him and to God. That is the church. Well, for one thing, universally, we are what? The bride of Christ. We're His bride. No wonder we're precious. And so everything that touches us affects Him. You'll see it in chapters 2 and 3. That's why the pure gold, it talks about the intense, how valuable, so much so that He would come and go to the cross and bear your sin and your judgment. All that poured out upon Him by His God the Father, that you could be His and become His bride. How precious we are. Number two, He then... Sees one like a son of man, verse 13 says, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. You know, John was an Old Testament scholar. you know that he really knew his Old Testament quite well, and you would expect that of him. Two things came into his mind when he saw one like a son of man in the middle of the seven lampstands. First of all, he would recall Daniel 7:13 and 14. He would have. He probably could have quoted in the Hebrew to you. But he would have remembered immediately Daniel 7, 13 and 40, where this same term for Messiah is used. Here it goes. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. This is intri- intri- intriguing to me. The setting back then to Daniel. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given... Dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, Daniel, I'm sorry, John would have remembered very clearly that passage of Scripture. And what was happening? He was seeing the Lord of glory there in the midst doing exactly that. Why this revelation? Because it's about to happen. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. You get to chapter 5 and he'll take the scroll, the title deed for the earth, out of the hands of God the Father. And then he begins to claim back the earth that Adam lost. But one like a son of man. Think of knowing that scripture and suddenly seeing Jesus glorified before your eyes, fulfilling that prophecy. But secondly, John would remember how the Lord Jesus Christ loved To use that title for himself when he was here in his earthly ministry. It emphasizes his humanity. The title, the Son of Man, it spoke of his humanity as well as his messiahship. But notice how we deal with every word of scripture. One like, one like A son of man. In his incarnation he became man. Fully man. But he always was and always will be God. He is the God man possessing the divine and a human nature. He is the second Adam who is about to reclaim back planet earth that the first Adam lost. That's the setting. That's the picture you see that John is suddenly startled. Startled. And introduced to on that island of Patmos as the Holy Spirit took him into this day of the Lord. The vision of Christ and all his glory that now follows will explain why he is standing in the midst of his churches. And so we come to the next part. John is struck by the glory of Christ's attire. He's struck by the glory of Christ's attire. You know, what somebody wears can say something about them. What somebody doesn't wear, okay, forget it. <laughs> but, uh, for example, if you see somebody in a beautiful wedding gown, you're thinking what? Pretty formal occasion. If you see people dressed up in uh, tuxedos, you know, I mean, really high class, you they're going to something pretty important, pretty uh, official, evidently. If you see somebody in work clothes, they may be going out to do yard work. If you see somebody that's got a blue uniform or maybe it's one of those rustlers and he's got a gun and a badge, you're thinking what? That's an official uniform he's wearing. That must be a police officer, a county sheriff or what have you. you. See, So what somebody wears can really say something about them. And indeed, this really says something about Jesus Christ when John sees him in his attire. Number one, he sees and describes Christ's robe. And in the middle of the lamp stands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. You may remember that Isaiah got a vision of the Lord. Chapter 6, by Isaiah. He saw him sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe Filling the temple. What's the picture you get there? Of this one on that throne. And I believe it was the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Gospel of John, that John the Apostle saw. I'm sorry, that Isaiah saw back there. It was a scene of unsurpassed royalty and dignity. W.A. Criswell says he was clothed with a garment, a flowing garment down to the foot, the priestly dress of a priest, the regal robes of a king, the judicial attire of a judge. This represents his celestial majesty and his judicial authority and his kingly priestly presence. Yes, this one dressed in this robe will protect his church. He will walk in the midst of His church and purify that church. He will protect the church from those that would come and destroy the church. False teachers, Jezebels, and so forth. He also is the one who will judge the earth dwellers and you'll see him in that role as you continue into the book of Revelation he is the one who will judge Antichrist and Satan and his minions and he will come back and judge every person living or dead that's why this majestic austere presentation in this robe not just a priestly robe, a regal, royal robe, one of Awesome power and authority. But what about this golden sash? Number two, he sees and describes Christ's golden sash. Now, the high priest also had a sash that he wore. I believe it was lower. It was not up around the chest. It was around the loins. It was of linen and it had gold thread running through it. This is a pure gold, solid gold. What's the significance about that? Well, one of the purposes of the sash, at least then, was they wore these very, very long flowing gowns. They had garments under them as well. And they would lift those long gowns up and they would tuck it under the sash so that they could move very swiftly. I'll tell you why I believe that is the significance of this here. You're talking about the regal royalty and the glory of the Son of God. Look with me at chapter 15 of Revelation. By this point, the Lord Jesus Christ is claiming back planet earth. He is pouring out one judgment after another upon the earth. And now it comes to the very last judgments before He comes back in His splendor and power and glory and slaughters the nations. And the last of those judgments are called bowl or vile judgments. Look at chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Boy, what sobering words, but what a sobering time. On the earth for the earth dwellers. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of the name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of gold, I need to get down to verse 6. Verse 5 and 6. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, Clean and bright, and girded about their chests with golden sashes. These judgments are going to be not just fierce, they're going to happen rapidly. When God, when grace runs out, and God moves in judgment, He moves swiftly in judgment. Upon the earth. And I believe that's what you have described for you in the Lord of glory. In this robe, this attire, as well as that sash. It's the idea that he can take that robe and tuck it under and move swiftly. In this judgment. We come now to the next part. John is struck by the glory of Christ's person. I am so incapable, even though I read a lot of books on this, to bring this to you. I, Even to myself, I'm so incapable on this. But oh, that the Holy Spirit would help you and He would help me to see our glorified Lord Jesus Christ as He would have us see Him here in the pages of Scripture. May He help us with that. John is struck by the glory of Christ's person. Did you know that nowhere in the whole Bible is there a picture, a description of the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly sojourn as the Son of Man? Nowhere. I mean, did He have red hair? Jewish people have red hair, some of them. Did He have blue eyes? I doubt that. He probably had brown eyes, right? How tall was He? I mean, there's no description. It says there's a a form and visage. uh, There's no... No, it was a such that we would not desire him uh, because of the way he was treated and so forth but there's no picture of, in fact I'll tell you one thing that's ruined it for me and I got ruined real young in life when I was a little boy and I went to the little Sweet Home Community Chapel Church right behind the pulpit there on the wall was Solomon's picture of Jesus Christ it's become like an American icon Mostly, how many of you know what I'm talking about You, yeah Anyway, that's the image I get did he really have long hair like that? Did he have that nice trimmed beard? You know, I mean, no pictures given of him. Why? Because God doesn't want us to see him that way. He wants us to see him in his glory. He would have us see him and behold him in his glory. The only place in all the Bible that was ever given, that ever gives a description of the Lord Jesus Christ is right here in the book of Revelation. Verses 13-16. through By the way, we're not going to ever see Christ, I think, except as a glorified Christ. That's how we're going to look upon Him. So maybe this will help us here. John is struck by the glory of Christ's person, and I think we will be as well. Number one, he is awed by Christ's head and hair in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Daniel, several centuries before, saw God the first person of the Trinity, having similar hair. In Daniel 7, 9, he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. So John sees him with this white hair. I believe here we have patriarchal honor and dignity. He is the eternal God, the eternally pre-existent God, our glorified Lord's hair being as white as snow, would also speak of His absolute purity. i tell you, we're so removed from God and so removed from the glorified Christ in a world that's fallen and lost and doesn't belong. I mean, they are really removed. And God, the God of this world is so blind to their minds, they have no conception. They somehow think that they could waltz in the presence of Holy God and stand there and be accepted. Be accepted. Impossible. Impossible. How could sinful man possibly look upon such holiness and live? We're not going to see it this morning, but later on John falls down. He was a very old, godly, faithful man. He fell down as a dead man. Daniel did the same as did Ezekiel. Just amazing. Amazing. So I think it speaks of his patriarchal honor, his dignity, his eternality, and his absolute purity. But number two, he is awed by Christ's eyes. He's awed by Christ's eyes in verse 14 in the middle there. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. (laughs) What a description. I have hazel eyes. Some of you have brown eyes. Some of you have blue eyes. Some of you have black eyes. I don't know. But to describe somebody's eyes as a flame of fire? John says, that's what I saw. Who or what can escape the scrutiny of those eyes of fire? In Hebrews 4.13 it says, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him with whom we must give an account. No wonder when in chapter 6 of Revelation all these horrible judgments are falling upon the earth and the great men and the kings and the mighty men and the the, uh, the slaves, they run to the mountains and say to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. No wonder. Even a simplistic uh, view of those eyes for Peter when he had denied him. One look is all it took for him. Hebrews 12, 29, talk about eyes of a flame of fire. Our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He sees and knows absolutely everything about you. Nothing is hidden from Him. Never. And now He comes back as a Lord of glory and the judge of the world. What an awesome picture. And remember, these people were going through suffering. The believers, these people in these churches, what an encouragement to them then to see that he is their God and their Savior. Listen, those eyes would be a comfort to them, not a terror. Matthew Henry said, though, God not only sees man, he sees through him. That's right. That's right. Number three, he is awed by Christ's feet. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. John beholds his Lord's feet and describes them as being like molten brass. You'll recall in the outer court of the tabernacle there were those, uh, I guess you'd call them furnishings. There was that altar and the laver where the priests washed their hands and feet before serving God. And all those instruments, they were all made of brass. Why? Because they spoke of God's judgment upon sin. God's judgment upon sin. Clearly brass speaks of that judgment and upon the sin and the sinner. In chapters 2 and 3, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ is seen walking. Now there's a focus on His feet again. Walking in the midst of the churches. What is He doing? He's doing evaluative judgment for one thing. He's evaluating where where the church is and its relationship to Him. It's fruitfulness or lack thereof. But he's also walking in the midst to protect it from those that are the false teachers, the Jezebels that have gotten into the church as well. He also will judge those who are, are uh, uh, or Peter, uh, Peter mentioned, he writes, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What a question. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what is the difficulty? It means what Christ had to do to save you. What will become of the godless man and the sinner? And by the way, Revelation gives you and me the answer. What will become of them? God will pour out the judgments upon the world. And finally, he will take them and what? He will cast them into the lake of fire. That's what he will do. Chapter 19 of Revelation, we find the Lord coming back, and again, to some degree, a focus upon His feet. He's seen, and from His mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it He may strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, and here it is, He will tread them. He will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. His feet were of burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. He is trapping on those grapes, just squashing them. The wrath of God Almighty. J.I. Sace writes, The glory of this metal in such a state is almost insufferable to the human gaze. It presents an image of pureness which is terrible. And it is upon these feet of dreadful holiness that our Lord walks among the churches and shall tread down all abominations and crush Antichrist and Satan and all who unhappily set aside his authority and his claims. Beautiful are those feet to those who love him, but terrible and consuming to those who shall be trodden by him. End of quote. Number four, he is awed by Christ's voice the last part of verse 15 and his voice was like the sound of many waters maybe that was like the roar of the ocean on that island of patmos i don't know but he's awed by christ's voice there is absolute great power and authority in that voice even in his earthly ministry, John would remember when he would speak to the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the storm. And immediately, the wind would stop. The waves would cease. He remembered when he was at the funeral of his dear friend Lazarus, after being, having been dead for four days. And there he stood, wept because of the loss of a loved one, knowing that you and I would go through that time and time again, as Heinz and Gerda and their family have. And here in this church, we'll be doing that over and over again, lest he come back soon. But nonetheless, he stood there and he saw his Lord and Savior command, Lazarus, come forth! Oh, And immediately, life entered in and he came out of that too. What a commanding voice! And all this at the beginning of Revelation, to encourage and strengthen the church. Because he is their God and Savior and Lord. There's coming a day when he's going to command every grave to be emptied. And every single one of them will be emptied. Amazing. What a commanding voice. God told his prophet Jeremiah to proclaim. And listen to this because it relates to the book of Revelation and that voice. The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against His fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth because the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. As for the wicked, He has given them to the sword, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 25, 30 and 31. A single word from the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, listen, it drowns out all other voices. When the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, of course, part of His glory was revealed there. That terrified them. I'll tell you what even maybe terrified them even more was a voice out of heaven. That voice out of heaven... God the Father commanded, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then in the imperative command, listen to Him. You better. I better. Number five, he's awed by Christ's right hand. He's awed by Christ's right hand. Verses 16, the latter part. First, first. I'm sorry. And in his right hand he held seven stars. He's awed by his right hand. The right hand is a hand of power and might. In chapter five, the sealed scroll that is the title deed to the earth is seen to be in the Father's right hand. We're told Jesus ascended back into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand. It's a place of authority. It's a place of might. You might have seen that. All through this description of the glorified Christ, you're seeing something of awe, of might, and power, and authority, of absolute authority. That's what you're seeing. There are seven stars that are said to be in His right hand couple of uh, debates about what those seven stars represent uh we're told down verse 20 a little bit more as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches now some would say and i, I i'm not dogmatic on this i don't know some would say uh uh they were uh angels uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, usually it's not the angels that protect the church. Uh, God uh, calls men to shepherd the church, to oversee it. Well, that's one view, and, and and that could be right. I don't know. That could be. I, I I like to think of that. I wish that Brother John was here because of his years of faithfully serving the Lord, uh, Brother John Hill. But uh, I, I just want to encourage him by saying, you know, it is an encouragement. To think that that when God calls you, that you're in His right hand a place of authority, I don't mean your authority, I mean his authority, a protection, a provision, that's an encouragement to me when I think about that. And yet as I was thinking after I wrote up all my notes, I thought, you know, the word angelos is used for angels, and uh, uh, it's used all the way through Revelation. Angels, 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 angels. I know it's it translated messenger. And I thought, you know, there's, there's probably, uh, that's a good view as well, because do I think that God has assigned uh, an angel to this church? Well, she's sitting right down there. She had to come with me. Let me reverse the question, or ask another question. Do I think that Satan has assigned demonic falling angels to this church? Yes, I do. He'd be crazy not to, would you not? Any place where the Word of God is taught where we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as atoning work, He'd be crazy not to assign an angel. If He's going to do that, then it makes sense to me that God might very well assign an angel as well. Maybe more than some, I don't know. So I can't be dogmatic upon that, but at least I know that it's a place of, of power and authority and uh, of strength, his right hand. And John sees that, and he sees this these seven angels, be them the pastors, that would be, the, I suppose, the, the pastor basically is doing the preaching, teaching, or whether it would be a literal angel, I don't know. I just know it's very important, and I'll accept it and leave it there. We'll settle that when we get home with glory, all right? As the church is the lampstand giving or holding forth the light in the dark world, though if it's pastors, they're the ones called stars who reflect the light of Christ, who holds them securely in His hand. It's probably another reason why some think it's pastored, because it's not angels that are reflecting the glory of Christ, it's we, the redeemed. J.I. says this, though, again, if I may quote him, He holds them as precious, disregarded as they may be by of men, they are dear to Him. He holds them for success against the host of evil, for glorious honor if they are faithful, and for eternal disgrace if they are not. End of quote. Well, that's sobering. That's sobering. But number six, he is awed by Christ's mouth. Verse 16, he's awed by Christ's mouth. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Our world world is utterly filled with verbiage. Unbelievably so. On your cell phones, on your television, on your radio, wherever you go, they're just the only place there's no chatter is here right now. I'm not chattering. I'm proclaiming God's word. But you know, as soon as you get out of here, going be a, go to the foyer. Just listen, see if you can figure out all that's going on in the foyer that's being said. Just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of words and we, we're just bombarded with them. And yet here the focus is on his mouth. Why? Every single word that ever came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, or whoever will, is absolutely weighted with profound meaning with regard to truth. When he spoke, the universe was brought into existence immediately out of nothing. If you don't believe that, ask Heinz. Go to his apologetic class. Get some instruction on that. Every word that Christ spoke that He had written down was so vital and absolute that He said that not one jot or tittle, those are those markings above and below the Hebrew alphabet there, not one, He said, would even pass away before all was fulfilled. He's awed by Christ's mouth. But John sees a sharp, two-edged sword that came out of that mouth. This sword is not the small sword that the Romans conquered the world with, uh, the Moxaira uh, sword that most every soldier would carry. No, this is a Ramphia. It is a huge, broad sword, sharp on both edges, and probably usually take two hands to handle it, but not for him. It is a sword for devastation and destruction. In Zechariah 14, you see how it's used. Revelation 19, he comes back and again that sword is described as coming out of his mouth. What does it mean? It means God, the Lord Jesus Christ in His glory just speaks. What kind of a battle will it be? I'll tell you what, it'll be a nuclear battle. Not created by man in all of his nuclear arsenal. No, he but speaks and says their sockets will rot. They will dissolve in their eyes. Their eyes will from the sockets. The flesh will dissolve off their bones, it says in Zechariah 40. That's the kind of sword we're talking about here. And at the very beginning of the book, in his glory, he's displayed to John and to you and me. What encouragement in a crazy, wicked, fallen, evil world that hates Him and hates you and me. To know He is our hope, that we can persevere because of that. Just how devastating is this sword that comes out of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ's mouth? Peter tells us, listen to this sword that comes, but by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Paul adds that to that the description of that awful, devastating judgment. These words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I read them last week, but let me do it again. For after all, he says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, not annihilation. They will pay the the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Wow. In John chapter twelve forty-eight, he said to those around him, those Jewish folk that were there, and for you and me to, as well, to the world today, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. Boy, every word. How important is this? Every word. He's the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Not this church, not the Catholic church, not any church, not any self-effort, only through Him. It is a sword of devastating judgment and indicates the omnipotence and sovereignty of this Son of Man. And finally, number seven, he is awed by Christ's face. He is awed by Christ's face. Verse 16, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. You know, you cannot look directly into the sun and see anything. You're just blinded if you do. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shone as the sun, and his garments became white like light. When the Lord appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road, it was high noon. there in the Middle Eastern country there. And it was so bright, it was way b- brighter than even the sun shining in its strength. How bright is it? I don't know. It's so bright that in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for the sun, moon, or any kind of light. That's how bright it is. How bright is it? I suspect it was even mentioned in Genesis 1, that light before he ever created the sun and the stars, or suns and the stars. That's how bright it is. It just overwhelms. How can you come into the presence of such a Lord of glory? Only by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Only by putting your faith in Him to save you. When He comes back to the earth to judge the world of unbelievers, when the sun has been darkened, along with all the stars and the blackness covers the face of the earth, it will be His face shining like the sun in its strength. It will be His glory that's going to light up the world, causing everyone to behold Him as He comes. That coming manifestation of glory in His person will be the utter terror of the sinner as well as the wonderful assurance of the saint. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how in the world could we ever conceive what John saw? He wrote it down. We study it. We meditate upon it. And it is so important for the church, because the one thing, Lord, I see is that the church is desperately in need of a fresh view from Scripture of our glorified Lord Jesus Christ. You walk in the midst of the churches. You're here right now. You also are the head of the church. It isn't the pastor. It isn't the elders. It isn't the congregation. It is you. And Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit, who has saved us, if we're saved, Who has authored the scriptures that we've looked at this morning. Who has revealed you, if you please. Painted a portrait of you, Lord Jesus, in all your glory. May he imprint that in our hearts and our minds, our lives. Individually and corporately here. That we would be pure. We would be holy. We would persevere we would understand that we are reflecting you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we are bearing this light to a lost world that is desperately, utterly lost. And so in need of this great salvation. Even now as we come to the table, I pray, Lord, you'll prepare our hearts. There's not a one of us that would say to you, I don't think anyway, that we are worthy. We're not. It is you. You are our righteousness. You are our redemption. You are our sanctification. You are our life. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. And I would say, and I'm sure those who love you and know your word would say as well, like John, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.